Good evening, everyone. Good to see everyone again tonight. And we are still in Colossians chapter 2. If you'll turn there. Seems like you all are getting farther and farther away every week. <laughs> uh, some of them are, you know. So last week we got into uh, verses 16 and 17 here in chapter 2 of Colossians. And um, where Paul is, he's getting to why he spent the whole first chapter and first part of second chapter talking about the supremacy of Jesus Christ and his work of salvation on behalf of sinners. Uh, why he had a, such a deep focus on the person and work of Christ. And if we ask the questions, why is Paul talking so much about what Christ did, or why does it matter so much that I as a Christian put my focus on what Jesus accomplished? Well, we find the answer in his list of the things that, um, that the people in the church at Colossae were being told they had to hold on to, to be right with God. So, so by him putting these things in this list then we, and, and what he says about them, then we can see why he spent so much time talking about uh, the person and work of Christ. Because these things are, are a, a contrast to that. They're, um, they're something that is being used to, to club people and uh, question their, their salvation. Um, and he indicates that those things are regarding consuming or not consuming certain foods or drink, as well as holding on to and observing certain festivals and other special days like the new moon or the Sabbath. And those things and others were being, like I said, being held against them by the false teachers. They, they had been passing judgment on uh, the Christians who were not observing these things. These were Jewish ceremonial observances that were valid under the old covenant but were no longer valid. And, and that didn't stop the false teachers from invalidating the salvation of those who were not willing to add these practices so that God would be pleased with them. Right, this, this false teaching can make, really can make shipwreck of a person's faith to be trying to observe these things or attach these things to the validity of someone's salvation. Um, Ray Steadman says that, that Paul's warnings in Colossians 2 16 through 23, he says, there are the things that can ruin your faith, those dangerous traps that await us on every side as we journey. There are no new heresies. We find the same things that can derail the spiritual life repeated. Bad theology always leads to bad practice. The mistaken ideas about the work of Christ um, and his sufficiency have corresponding errors on the practical side. I think that's really true um, when, we, when we look at these things and why Paul has to come, uh, has to write about these things and come at them so hard um, to bring their focus back to Christ. Observing these things as a means of salvation or being seen as right and righteous before God is a hindrance to the Christian life. It's a hindrance to true salvation for some people who aren't saved yet, and these are being put on them. This only produces outward, you know, observing all these things that Paul lists here only produces outward boasting uh, of supposed inward righteousness. Um, and it's supposedly proved to God and other men by our visible self-effort and stated adherence to every requirement of religious ritual, ritualism and legalism, right? We, um, that's what this produces, to, to have this theology of observing these things, people are trying to prove something to God. They're, they're offering themselves to God as reason why he should save them. Um, and we also offer these things up to other men to prove how spiritual we are, how righteous we are. Um, you know, and that, that's what the Apostle Paul used to do. That's who the Apostle Paul was when he lived his life as a Pharisee, um, holding on to every letter of the law that uh, that he obeyed and making sure that everyone knew about it, including God. But what did Paul conclude was 
of most value, of most importance to him. He talked about that as knowing Christ. Knowing Christ is more valuable. And that's why we see such an emphasis on Christ here. In Philippians 3, if you want to turn with me to Philippians 3, 8 through 10, there's a whole section here where Paul is describing his, his former life as a Pharisee. And um, I won't read the first part of it, but just to sum it up, the first part of this section is, is Paul listing all of his qualifications, his, his human qualifications, right? The things that human beings would hold up and say, look how spiritual I am. I, I deserve salvation. God should accept me. But we start in verse 8 of chapter 3 in Philippians and see what he, ultimately what he concluded about those things. And he says, Philippians 3, 8, Indeed, I count everything as a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. That's what Paul concluded. So as we look at this list of things here in this passage that he's saying, these are shadows. These, these aren't the substance. Christ is the substance. That's the same thing he's talking about there in Philippians 3. He determined that um, because Christ saved him. And, and all of a sudden, being saved, you realize, I am nothing. I have nothing to offer God. It's all about knowing Christ. This is what a person, those things, all those external things are what a person gives up when they come to faith in Christ. We don't want to embrace the false religions of ritualism and legalism. Uh, the simple yet powerful effect of knowing Christ for salvation is Paul's goal here. He, that's what he wants to remind them of. It's really simple in that sense. Don't, don't clutter it up with all these other things. That's where it's at in Christ. And some were, were forgetting it. Um, and Paul had to remind them. Remember, we already saw Paul's aim in this letter back in verse 28 of chapter 1, where he says, him, he's talking about Christ here, him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone that all wisdom, uh, with all wisdom, that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Again, it's all about Christ. It's not about all those other things. And there's warning and there's proclamation that goes with this. It's all about the truth about Christ. Um, he wants to present everyone mature in Christ. That we would think rightly about Christ. That we would grow into Christ. Um, we were under the curse of the law. We were subject to its legal demands. As you remember, uh, we looked at uh, a couple weeks ago. But what did Christ do with our sin and the legal demands of, the, of that law, all that was against us? What did he do with that, according to this passage that we read a couple weeks ago? Remember, he canceled it, right? <clears throat> he canceled it, and what did he do with it? He nailed it to the cross, right? Nailed it to the cross. So don't let anyone say that you have to keep this law or observe this day or that day to be right with God. Christ has made you right with God once and for all. Jesus saved you, not you. You didn't save you. So let's look again at, this, at these couple verses here, and then we'll, and we'll pray for this evening. Colossians chapter 2. <clears throat> like I said, we only got partway into this last time, so we'll be kind of in the same area here um, this week as well. Verse 16, Therefore let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food, and drink, or with regard to a festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Okay, let's have a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you, Lord, for this time to gather tonight, um, to look into your word again, and um, continue to reinforce our understanding of the power of the work of Christ on the cross, and all that that accomplished. And we come to see this and have this reinforced so that we, Lord, that we uh, become less and Christ becomes more. That our thinking would continually be 
uh, fixed on Christ. I pray you would help us in our lives, Lord, not to be trapped into the things that seem to be true that are not, things that would bind us back into a slavery of legalism or something like that, Lord, and, and put us in bondage again when we know that it was for freedom that Christ has set us free. We thank you for it, Lord. We thank you for our salvation. We give you praise. In Jesus' name, amen. So therefore, let no one pass judgment. And one author writes that there's a strong emphasis on therefore. It supports the following counsel by the all-sufficiency of the cross and of the glorious triumph of the Christ. Thus, Paul makes our completeness in Christ the sufficient reply to all false and futile aberrations, seducing man away from him, either wholly or in part. Um, I really like what he said there, talking about how Christ is, the completeness in Christ is sufficient. It's a sufficient reply to anyone who would say, Christ, yeah, but you have to do these other things. We can say, no, that is not true. That's to, that's to seduce us away from the truth of the sufficiency of Christ. And we already talked last week, we already talked about the food and the drink aspect. Um, so I wanted to move on to the other points that Paul lists here. And I don't want to spend a, a ton of time in an in-depth study of the festivals and other things. We could spend a lot of time on those things. Um, that's not really the, the point that I want us to look at tonight, but I do want to talk about them, um, and I think it will benefit us to know um, what part these things played in, um, in God's plan of how things come about <clears throat> and in the, in the lives of the Jews, because they're not nothing. They're, they weren't for no purpose that, that God instituted uh, these festivals and the things that, that Paul is writing about here. Um, so I want to look at some of those festivals, because he mentions those. Like I said, we already talked about the food and the drink aspect, but he mentions some other things there in, in verse 16, um, that people wouldn't pass judgment on you in question of food and drink, or with regard to <clears throat> a festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath. Um, and, <clears throat> excuse me, first we need to, we need to notice what, what Paul says they were, and we can see that right in verse 17. He tells us not to let anybody pass judgment on these things, on us in regard to these things, but he says what they are. In verse 17, these are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. So they are a shadow. What does Paul mean by saying that something is a shadow? What do you guys think? How would you describe what he means by describing these things as a shadow? Okay, the, these old things in the Old Testament were a picture of what was to come in the New Testament. I would agree with that. I mean, we all know what a shadow is, right? We, we get the concept of, of that. A shadow is, it is it's merely like a, a flat image or outline of something, right? The, there's a, the sun comes and casts a shadow of something that's, that's in its path. Um, it can be in the shape of the real thing in, a, in kind of a one-dimensional way, but it's not the thing. Okay, uh, it can prove that the thing exists, but it can never be the, the thing, whatever the thing is. Okay, uh, it can point to the real thing, but if you if you never look at the real thing, you will only ever have the shadow. Right, so we ha we kind of have to have this picture in our mind um, that uh, why he's describing these things as a shadow, and then think about what what a shadow is. Um, I, I must give another example from Ray Steadman because I was, as I was reading through, he gave a really, really good visual that was helpful to me anyway. I thought it would be helpful to you as well. But on this point of the difference between the shadow and the real thing, he says, I carry with me pictures of my wife, my children, and my grandchildren. I take them along to be ready for people who try to show me their pictures. I value these photographs, and I look at them occasionally when I'm away from home. But what would you think if I propped up these pictures all over my house and talked to them and tried to relate to them? You would think I'd lost my mind, and I probably would have. 
But more than that, I would certainly soon lose touch with the very people whose pictures I treasure. They would feel I ignored and would probably ultimately leave me and, um, and all relationship would cease. That's what Paul says is wrong with shadows. If you still place primary value on a shadow after the reality has come, you destroy your participation in the value of that reality. And that's exactly what the people were doing with these observances. Right? They were focused on the shadow and missing the fact that the real thing had come. Christ being the real thing. He had come. And they were focused on the shadow. And they had no relationship with the real thing. Worse, they were bringing others into this false teaching. And I, could, I can't help. I, every time I... And reading scripture that deals in shadows and those kinds of things, as I think through it, I, I can't help but thinking about uh, Mr. Miyagi and Daniel-san and the Karate Kid. Right? It's just, it's very similar that, you know, Daniel's always getting frustrated because he's having him paint his fence and, and wax the car and all these things, and he doesn't understand, why am I doing all these things? He just gets frustrated. He's sore, he's been doing it for a long time, they seem to have no purpose but they were, those things were a shadow of what he was, what the real thing was, which is when it comes time for him to fight, right, these, all these things he's done and trained uh, are actually blocking maneuvers to block strikes that would come from an enemy. Uh, and I can't help but thinking about that every time, every time I think about these concepts of the shadows and the real thing, uh, that that's sort of a similar thing, that the Israelites were doing all these things uh, in obedience to God and not ever really recognizing they were pointing to Christ. They were pointing to the coming Messiah, and they had a bigger purpose, and it wasn't those things that saved them or made them um, right in God's eyes. Uh, they had no value for eternal salvation. Um, and we can find a list of Jewish festivals and, other, and their, all their requirements and everything in Leviticus 23, like the, the Passover in Leviticus 23.5, and um, the Feast of Unleavened Bread in 23.6, the first fruits in 2310, and the Feast of Weeks, also known as Pentecost. Um, and we can see that in, in Leviticus 2315. And with each of those, the institution of each of those things, there's all kinds of requirements. There's all kinds of sacrifice and things that go along with them. So I want to talk about just, just a, a few of those things. Not, all of the, not everything we see in Leviticus 23, but just a few of them that are kind of more well-known to us. Um, and kind of ask a question about each of those. And Paul here is in, in our passage is describing those things as shadows of the real thing. So let's look at a couple of those. He doesn't name these specific things in here. He just says festivals, right? Don't let anybody pass judgment on you in question of food or drink or with regard to a festival. It seems that he's um, hearkening back to Old Testament, hearkening back to Jewish requirements for festivals and those kinds of things. I'm in the ESV, yeah. Um, so, first question then, let's talk about one of the festivals that we see there in Leviticus 23, which is Passover. If I ask the question, why was Passover a shadow of Christ? How would you describe that? Why was Passover a shadow? What was that? Okay, yeah, so going all the way back to when the Israelites are in, in bondage in Egypt, um, they're commanded to put the blood on the doorposts, um, and that's the only thing that would save them from the angel of death that's going to pass over and kill, uh, that's going to come through and kill all the firstborn in every family, uh, in every household, and so having that blood there covered them, and so the angel would pass over any house that had that blood on the door. Right? And only those people that had that blood, that were covered in that blood, would be saved uh, from the angel of death who would pass over instead of killing them. And those who were covered by the blood of the Lamb, God saved out of slavery in Egypt. Okay, This pictured Christ. Peter said, Christians are ransomed with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Right? So he even, Peter pictures Christ as that lamb. But that's not all. 
What did John the Baptist declare when, when Jesus appeared? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, right? Um, and Paul himself clearly described Jesus as the substance um, of this shadow when he said, cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. In 1 Corinthians 5, 7. Okay, so clearly we see in the New Testament, we see in the scriptures, Christ himself is described as uh, the Passover lamb. Okay, so what happened all those years ago um, was pictured in Christ. People were saved by the blood of a spotless lamb when they put that blood there. And after they were saved, what did God do? He saved them out of slavery. And that's what Christ does, right? By being in Christ, covered in the blood of Christ, um, not only are we saved from eternal death, but we're given eternal life. We're saved from the bondage of sin and given freedom in Christ. So we can see how, how that's a shadow. That's a, it's a picture of Christ. Well, let's move to another one. Why was the Feast of Unleavened Bread a shadow? Does anybody know why that would be considered a shadow? Israelites had to eat unleavened bread for, for um, seven days, starting on the 15th day of the first month, the day after Pentecost. They had to eat unleavened bread for, for seven days. Um, and, you know, leaven, like yeast, is the substance that's put in to make the bread rise, but in the scripture, it's often pictured as sin. Right? Leaven is pictured as, as sin. And this pictures Christ and his sinless life, right? which, was, which was lived for our benefit and our behalf, because we could not live a sinless life. Only Christ has done that. And of course, his perfect sinless life was necessary so that he could become the perfect sacrifice, right? the unblemished lamb of God. Uh, what about the feast of first fruits as a shadow? What is that picture? Resurrection, right. Yeah, bringing in the first fruits. They're, they're required to bring in the first fruits of grain, and it pictured... Um, Christ in that it represented the resurrection of Christ. Um, it's the resurrection of the first fruits um, of the righteous. The day Christ resurrected from the dead um, was on that day, right? The day that he actually uh, rose from the dead was the day when this feast was being observed. And so Christ rose on that day. And, and Paul referred to Jesus in this way in 1 Corinthians 15, 20, he says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Um, what about the Feast of Weeks or Pentecost? Why was, this, why was that a shadow? Well, this, the Feast of Weeks was a time when they were to um, bring in, they were to reap the harvest of the land, in particular, new grain, okay? And, they, and, and so they were to harvest that, to bring all that in. And this picture's Christ in that it, it pointed to the harvest of souls. Um, in, in Acts 2, when we see that um, the Holy Spirit comes, um, on that same day, that's when this was being observed. That's the day of Pentecost, uh, and it was very specific. It was seven weeks. It was 50 days um, um, after the previous feast, which was the, well, actually, it was, I think, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Right after that is when the counting started. Um, but then on that day uh, in, in Acts chapter 2, there are how many people are added to the kingdom of God? There's 3,000 people that come. There's this big harvest of people, and the Holy Spirit comes on that day, and so we see that the picturing of that, these first fruits of grain, this gathering of grain in is pictures what happens in the New Testament when the Holy Spirit comes um, and people are saved through Christ, right? They're, they're brought in. And 
Um, of course, these are the souls of lost people. Uh, they're like, you know, people being made new in Christ. They're like new grain. They're being harvested, right? Um, so we see examples here of these festivals being shadows of what is to come. So it's not that they're unimportant or they had no value for when God instituted them and, and commanded his people to observe these things. But at some point, right, when the time of those shadows is gone because the substance, meaning Christ, has come, then those shadows, you turn your gaze away from those shadows on the real thing that's there. You know, if someone's casting a shadow on the ground and, and they're approaching me, I don't just keep looking at their shadow and talk to the shadow. They're standing right there. I can ignore the shadow. I can, I can, the real thing is there. It's no longer pointing to what's coming. Um, the, the substance has come. And that's the point that Paul is making to the Colossians. Right? It's, again, it's not that these things never had any value, but, but they have no value in saving a person. They have no value in making you right before God. Um, so they served a purpose. That purpose was it set God's people apart. Right? No one else was, was doing these things or observing these things. It set God's people apart. And so that they would remember him, so that they would honor him. But also they served a purpose of pointing the people to the real thing. Um, and these represented the reality that Christ would, he would ultimately accomplish. So Paul's saying these are done away with. These are just a shadow of the real thing. They have no value in making you right with God because that's what Christ did. If you're in Christ, he's the one that made you right with God, not your observance of um, a bunch of rituals or ceremonies or things like that. What about... You know, Paul lists in there um, a new moon. What about a new moon that Paul mentioned? The, or, or the first day of the month, there was a requirement for sacrifice found in Numbers 28.11. It says, at the beginning of your months, you shall offer a burnt offering to the Lord, two bulls from the herd, one ram, seven male lambs a year, a year old without blemish. Um, so the time period there, specifically the first day of the month, or new moons. Um, and as with all these other festivals that we looked at, you can see in the scriptures in Leviticus 23 where those things are instituted. And under there, if you keep reading, it tells, them, tells you all the things they had to do, like really specific lists of things they had to do in bringing a particular sacrifice and how they had to do it. And um, as you read, we read through the, the Bible this last year, um, you know when you're going through those passages, there's a ton of detail that God gives for the people to do. And that's part of all that they had to observe in these things. Um, and in order to be properly worshiping God, properly preparing yourself to come before God, to properly um, deal with sin at the time, um, all of which have now been done away with by the reality of the appearing of the perfect Lamb of God. And so we can see, if you think about these things that Paul mentions here and, and and if, if, if you know that the people there understood what was being required of them, it's not just, oh, on this day, you, you sit there and you think about this day. There was a lot of requirements that went along with these festivals. And now these false teachers are telling them, you have to do all these things. Everything associated with this, you have to do. So you have to get these animals, you have to do all these things, make sacrifices, and hold, hold, do all the things that the scriptures would have said to do. Um, in order to be right with God, in order to be saved. It was not just Christ. You had to have these other things. And Paul's saying, no, that is not the truth. What about the Sabbath? We see in, in one sense why the Sabbath was important when we read about it in Exodus. Uh, chapter 20, verse 11 says, For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day, therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. And sometimes we kind of stop there and think, well, that's why there was a Sabbath. But there's more to it than that. We also see a more specific and I think more important reason given by Moses later on in Deuteronomy. Um, chapter 5, verse 15, he says, You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand, and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. 
Okay, so there's something more there. There's something else. There's a remembrance of what we already talked about a little bit earlier about being saved, being brought out from slavery uh, with a mighty hand of God. And so he commanded them to keep the Sabbath day. And we're also told that Sabbaths were a sign to Israel of the Old Covenant. Ezekiel 20.12 says, Moreover, I gave them my Sabbaths as a sign between me and them that they might know that I am the Lord who sanctifies them. So the questions arise, how can, how can Christians then know that we're not bound by the requirement to keep the Sabbath? Um, and I think first and most clearly and definitively, we can go to, this, to our very passage here in Colossians and we can see that the Sabbath is listed here in this list of things and observances that we're not to allow others to pass judgment on us in terms of keeping them. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. Don't let anyone question your salvation in terms of a Sabbath if you're not keeping a Sabbath. And it's very clear um, that it was just a shadow. Right? He made it clear that Sabbath is one of those things that's just a shadow. And, and to say just a shadow is not to Again, to minimize the importance of God instituting the Sabbath. But when the real thing comes, it's time that the other thing goes away, or the shadow goes away. So how is it then? How is the Sabbath a shadow of Christ? What do you think? How is the Sabbath a shadow of Christ? What was that? Well, well, he arose on the day after the Sabbath. The first day of the week is when he rose. Yeah. Yeah, he, the New Testament will tell us he is our Sabbath. Okay, that's important. He's our rest. Okay, right? The Sabbath represented rest from working, right? Um, not only do, did we, we read earlier why God instituted those things, or, or why God instituted the Sabbath, and some of the reasons why, but it was one of the points of the Sabbath was that it was a day of rest. Um, and it rep represented also, as we read, um, a remembrance of being set free by God uh, from slavery. And in Christ, we rest from striving to be made right with God through the keeping of the law and other observances. All right, we, why can we rest in Christ? Why is that a thing? In, in terms of striving and, and the law, why can we rest? He's done all the work, right? And that's the point. That's the point Paul's making. He's done all the work. Uh, we, we no longer observe a rest from our working, but we can rest because Christ did all the work. Right? We rest in Christ, and we rest in Christ every day. Right? Do we observe the Lord's Day on Sunday? Yes. But our Sabbath rest in Christ would be every day, because Christ did all the work. Um, and Sunday, you know, the first day of the week is Sunday. And Sunday didn't just replace the Sabbath day, right? Um, Sunday is not our Sabbath day. The Sabbath is done away with. That was a shadow. Uh, we don't observe the Sabbath. But we're told not to neglect a gathering together of believers right, in Hebrews 10, 24, and 25. But why? Why are we told not to neglect the gathering together of believers? And does that have anything to do with Sabbath? No, it doesn't have anything to do with Sabbath. Um, we don't come together on the first day of the week as Christians when the church gathers. We don't come together to rest we come together for a different purpose now. And we look at Hebrews 10, 24 and 25, it says, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. What was that? The gathering is really for sanctification, right? That's... It's not rest, 
Right? We, don't, we don't gather together to rest in the sense of the Old Covenant Sabbath keeping where you couldn't do anything, right? Um, we come together and we see in that passage there in particular that we're, consider, we're to come and consider how to stir up one another to love and what? Good works. Not stir up one another to rest, right? We stir one another up to love and good works. Well, what are good works? Everything that Christ has commanded us in the scriptures as Christians to do. Husbands loving their wives, um, children obeying their parents, you know, all the lists of things, uh, us being patient, um, loving, forgiving, all these things are good works. That's what we're to be doing. We're to be stirring up one another, and we do that when we come together. And we've also received gifts um, of the Holy Spirit. And those are not for ourselves. Those are for when we gather together and, and we edify one another by the gifts that the Holy Spirit has given us. So we don't neglect to meet together. And he says, uh, the author of Hebrews says that that's a, a bad habit of some. Right? That they, They're neglecting that, that time to gather together. Uh, and that's a bad habit. He says, encourage, we need to come and encourage one another. And, and actually, this is an increasing thing. It should be increasing as, we, as the days go along. Right? He's saying, all the more as you see the day drawing near, that we need to encourage one another. We need to stir one another up to love and good works. Um, and part of that is that we encourage one another in confession of sin, right? in, in uh, confession and uh, repentance, restoration, growing in holiness, all these things. And we're encouraging one another in that. And like, like Bubba said, that is all part of our, this process of sanctification in our lives, that God is working in us through the Holy Spirit to make us more like Christ. And, and so we come together on the first day of the week to do those things. It doesn't mean we can't do those things all week long. We should. But we specifically gather together on the, the first day of the week to encourage one another all the more as we see the day drawing near. And that doesn't really sound like the Sabbath of the Old Covenant. Right? That's not what they were doing. Um, no working was allowed on that. So, so we come together. It's an active thing. We don't gather to rest, but to serve and to encourage one another as we worship God together. And what are some of the other reasons that we know uh, we do not observe the Sabbath? Well, there's no New Testament command to observe the Sabbath. Okay, we don't see that. In fact, just the opposite, like we see in, this, in our very passage here in the New Testament in Colossians chapter 2, it's in the list of things not to allow someone to question you on if you're not doing it. Okay? It's a shadow. Um, the Jerusalem Council, you know, I, Bubba I think talked about that on Sunday. Uh, you mentioned that. Um, the gathering of the apostles and others who come together to make decisions about the church. And they gave specific instruction about what to say to the Gentile believers, right? And in that, there was no requirement of the observance of the Sabbath. They didn't put that burden on them as, um, as Gentile Christians. They didn't put that burden on them to keep the Sabbath. Um, also, we see in several places in Scripture, we see lists of sins, lists of things to get rid of, to avoid, that we don't want as part of our lives whether it be anger or malice, or wrath, um, all those kinds of things, we're to be rid of them. And as, as we go through the New Testament and you see all those lists, um, what's missing from there is not observing the Sabbath. There's no list in the list of sins that says not observing the Sabbath is one of these things. It's not there. Um, and... I mean, we see things like disobedience to parents, but not, not observing the Sabbath. Um, if they're going to put in disobedience to parents, you'd think they would put in the, the Sabbath, right? Uh, but it's not a command in the New Testament scriptures. We observe, the, we gather together as Christians on the first day of the week. That's, that's Sunday. It's the day after the Sabbath. It's the day the Lord rose from the dead. It's the day when the early church gathered. We can see that in the scripture. It says on the first day of the week, they were gathered together. Um, not only that, but you know, as, as we're going through church history in Sunday school, um, the early church and moving forward met on Sundays. 
Some will say, well, that was instituted later on, I think by Constantine, was it? Yeah. Yeah, so, but it, we know that it, it wasn't just because somebody um, said something, you know, three, four hundred years later, it was always the practice from the resurrection of Christ. It was the practice of Christians from that day to meet on the first day of the week. So it's not something that was instituted later on. Yeah. Right, that's a good point, right? It's not just a group of people gathering together going, ah, I think we should do this because it felt good to them or felt like a good day of the week to do it. They searched the scriptures. And of course, they're going to go and they're going to find where the scriptures say they were gathered together on the first day of the week. Okay, it, that's, so they're, they're, they may be saying, here's what we're going to do and here's why we're going to do it, but it's based on scripture, not just a whim. Um. So there are several reasons why we can see in the New Testament that the Sabbath is not uh, something that Christians observe. Um, it's, it's done away with. It was a shadow. Christ is the substance. He is our rest. Well, let's look in Galatians 4. I want to go look there. Seems like I know it seems like we're beating a dead horse here, but... You know, you may have somebody in your life that's going to be saying they're a Christian and yet feels that they have to observe all these things. And if they don't, they can't be saved. And they maybe even try to convince you of that. Um, so we need to know that it's not true. We need to know how we can use the scripture and show them, not in an angry way, but to show them, no, this, it's not true. Uh, Galatians 4, 8 through 11, uh, you know, this is a major concern for Paul and the Galatian church as well. And, and he was addressing these kinds of things, these kinds of observances. <clears throat> he says in verse 8 in chapter 4, formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elemental principles of the world, whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years I'm afraid I may have labored over you in vain. It's clearly, uh, this is another place where it's clearly freeing us from any concern over observing certain days in connection with our salvation. Right? His, Paul's concern is, was pretty severe there. They may not even be believers. Did he labor in vain? And of course, there is the opportunity or the, the possibility, in, including in the Colossian church, that true Christians are being hindered by this, that their, their joy is being, they're being robbed of their joy in Christ. They're being brought into slavery to these things, not losing salvation, but, but having, they're, they're going to be stifled in their faith. They're not going to be ob, uh, observing what they should be observing, which is the person and work of Christ for their salvation not these other things that lead to self-righteousness and boasting in themselves and all that kind of stuff. And what better way for Paul to refute the false teaching, the legalism and the ritualism of um, the folks who were bringing this into the church at Colossae than to simply point out the sufficiency of the work of Christ in salvation. That's what he's been doing in this whole first two chapters, talking about Christ, what Christ did, what he accomplished, and that's how he did it. He didn't Though he could have uh, gone to many other uh, things uh, in teachings and, and shown that this is not the case, what he did was he simply pointed to Christ. Um, and the reality, they already knew. As Christians, they already knew this about Christ. And perhaps they had forgotten or uh, it had been so long in, in steeped in false teaching that they couldn't remember what was true. Um, so, what he did was he went to the simple truth that, that the God-man, Jesus Christ, did all the work, and we are made right by God by being found in the righteous one, who is Christ. It's his righteousness, not our righteousness. And Spurgeon said, do not let anybody come in and 
tell you that it is necessary for your salvation that you should abstain from this meat or that drink, that there's a merit in fasting for 40 days in Lent, or that you cannot be saved without observing such and such a holy clay. Your salvation is in Christ. Keep you to that and add nothing to this one foundation which is once for all laid in him. So if, if I am not to do things to be acceptable to God, if I'm not to do things to be seen as righteous by God, then why am I doing anything that would be considered a spiritual discipline, like reading my Bible or praying or serving others? What is the difference? If I'm not doing those things to be accepted by God or to be seen as righteous by God, why am I doing them? I'm not not talking about why am I doing festivals and all that. I'm specifically talking about things we would consider spiritual disciplines, prayer, reading the Bible, studying the Bible, serving others. Why are we doing that? Okay, these are a response to love, you meaning the love of God towards us, and not to gain the love of God, okay? In obedience, okay? Sure. Other thoughts on that? So we all understand that there's a difference between Christ commanding us to do something for our growth, our sanctification, to be obedient to him. There's a difference between that and doing those things to be saved or to be seen as righteous before God. Right? The only way we're seen that way before God is if we are in Christ because it is the righteousness of Christ that, um, that God sees us in. Right? We put on Christ's righteousness. Is it ever, I mean, is God ever fooled by our going through the motions of spirituality or ritualism? No. He's not fooled by that. In fact, Turn to um, Isaiah 1 with me. He's not fooled by it. He hates it. This is something God hates. There's There's a fakeness. In Isaiah 1, verses 11 through 14, look what God says about these Things that the people are doing. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. What's being described there? What was that? Phariseeism, okay? Ritualism. They're, they're practicing things. They're perhaps doing things God commanded, but what's the problem? Their heart, right? They're, they're the reason they're doing them, the, their motivations. They are not focused on God. They're doing it out of ritual. They're doing it to check the boxes. Um, they're doing it while steeped in sin and in unrepentant ways. Um, and God hates this. And it's not just back then. We can do the same today. We can come and go through motions. We can mouth words to songs um, without thinking, without thinking about what we're doing and why we're here. We can come in, do those things. We can leave without talking to anybody. Have, we may be showing up and leaving, but we're not connecting. We're not spurring one another on or doing any of those things. Um, God doesn't, he's not fooled by that. We may fool other people sometimes, but God is not fooled by that. But what does God want? Psalm 51, 15 through 17. 
It says, O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. That's what God's after. That's what God wants. Right? We come in, in humility. We come with the broken spirit, the broken and contrite heart before a holy God. We come in remembrance of what Christ has done um, and what he has accomplished. These are, this is what God desires. Not going through the motions. So, and Paul has made it pretty clear that what is most important is Christ. And not just saying the name of Christ, but understanding as Christians what, what Christ has done for us. And that that would be our focus, that that would be our motivation. Our praise would be directed to, to him. Our motivation for gathering together is to encourage one another in that truth about Christ and what he has done, not in law-keeping. Right, so, and he's not done. He goes on, and we're not going to go on in that tonight. Um, but he goes on. That's he's not done with lists of things. Um, he also doesn't want them disqualified by those who would insist on asceticism and worship of angels, and going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind. And and then he goes on to point out instead of holding fast to the head, which is Christ. So that'll be for next time. And I won't be here next week. Brandon will be covering for me. Um, so I will have to see you the week after that. But grateful for everyone being here tonight. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father in heaven, thank you, Lord, uh, for these reminders uh, in your word about where our focus should be, which is on uh, the substance, which is Christ. Um, Lord, we... We don't typically struggle with people trying to get us to observe Old Testament festivals or sacrifices. Um, but Lord, there are things in our day that we could perhaps come up with our, on our own to say, I must do this to be made right before you. Or perhaps other people might have things that say that you must do. And Lord, I pray we would not be um, deceived by those things. I pray, Lord, we would be reminded of the, sim- the simplicity of the gospel of Jesus Christ and his work. And may it result in praise and honor and glory toward you. And may we honor you with our lips, Lord, uh, with our hearts, with our actions, our attitudes. And we give you praise for Uh, the sufficiency of the work of Christ on our behalf. I pray we'd be ready to share that with others as you put them in our lives. We praise you for all these things. In Jesus' name, amen.